Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, good morning, guys. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Byron, and I get the great privilege to serve here as the lead pastor and church planter. You notice we're doing things a little bit different today. Um, Hurricane Harvey is coming through, and we went ahead and canceled our gatherings because we wanted everyone to be safe. Um, but we still wanted you to have the worship experience and to continue along with us in our study in the book of James. And so we're going to be doing this recording today. Uh, even though you can't be with us, this is a great opportunity for us to experiment with live video preaching. And so we really hope that you enjoy it. In addition to that, I've got a couple of quick announcements I want to give to you before we get started in our study in James. Um, first is on September 10th, we're going to be moving to two identical worship gatherings. That's going to give us twice as many opportunities for people to meet Jesus, but it also means that there's gonna be twice as many opportunities for you to serve. And so we'd really encourage you to get involved in the serve team, whether you wanna serve at the 9.30 or at the 11.15, now we have no excuses because you can serve one and you can sit one and never miss out on what Jesus is doing in the church. So we want you to serve when we move to two gatherings. In addition to that, um, we have postponed our baptism Sunday, which was supposed to be today, because everybody's getting baptized. And so um, baptism service is going to be coming up pretty soon. So please do me a favor, sign up online to get baptized. And you'll get one of these really cool shirts that says Death, Burial, Resurrection. It's our brand new baptism tee just for you when you sign up for baptisms. And then lastly... Hey, just because we're not able to worship here together as a church, we can still worship God with our giving through our tithes and offerings. And so we'd really encourage you to give online at redemptiontx.com. The reason being is that we still have church even though we're actually not gathered together as a church. So we still need to continue to give and to support missionaries, to plant the church, and to see Jesus keep changing lives all across Beaumont. So that's just a little quick update before we get started today. If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. That's where we're going to be at. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we pray for those who are um, in the storm, Lord, as they are gathering together with their family, as they're sitting with their friends. Father, we pray that they would be safe. We pray that the Holy Spirit would comfort them, that would give them help in their times of need. Lord, that they would use this opportunity to be able to to worship together as a family, to have good, honest gospel conversations. Father, we pray for our time today that would be pleasing to you and profitable to us, that whatever people are going through, whatever in this life makes them feel lowly, whatever makes them feel humble, whatever makes them feel as if they are unloved or unwelcomed, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would move into that place and would exalt them through the person and work of Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So today, I've got a little Bible trivia for you as we get started. So for all you Sunday school dropouts, this is your opportunity to redeem yourself. So put your thinking caps back on. We're going to do a little Bible trivia to start off our gathering time today. So we're, we're studying the book of James. Okay, and James had a brother. Now, who was James's big brother? Jesus, yes. Jesus was James' big brother. Even those of you who are non-Christians and guests, like you, you got that one, right? Like if the pastor ever asks a question, then you, you just know. Like the answer is going to be Jesus. So that, that's a good one, right? Okay, we got one more for you. Here's another one. Okay, James and Jesus were brothers. Now, who was their mom? Mary, yes. All you former Catholics, great job. Welcome. Glad to have you watching with us. So James, Jesus, Mary, Jesus' family... Okay, were they rich or poor? They were poor. All indicators in the Bible tell us that Jesus' family grew up very poor. So Mary was an unwed, single teenage girl, probably about the age of 12 to maybe 14 years old. Through a miracle of the Holy Spirit, she conceived and gave birth to our Lord Jesus. And then he was adopted by a blue-collar construction worker man named Joseph, who spent most of their life swinging a hammer, building tables, building homes, working a very blue-collar job. It also tells us that Jesus was from a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was a rural hick town out in the middle of nowhere. Some of you grew up in towns just like that. You got out as fast as you could. That's where Jesus grew up at. And in, in Nazareth, one man asked, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Okay, so think about it kind of like Buna or Deweyville or Kirbyville. Like that's kind of where Jesus grew up. Very humble, very rural, very poor. 
In addition to that, the Bible tells us that um, as a Jewish family, they would have to bring sacrifices to the temple in order to atone for their sins. And these sacrifices, they could get very costly. It had to be a perfect, spotless lamb without any sort of blemish, and that could get pretty expensive. But there was a provision in the law that allowed for people who, who are in poverty to bring a lesser sacrifice. And the Bible tells us that that's the sacrifice that Jesus' family made. And so Jesus' family, they were poor. Okay, now let me ask you another question. Okay. Does God want us as Christians to be rich or poor? Okay, you're like, I don't know what God wants, but I know what I want. Like, take the money and, and run, right? Okay, but the question is, does God want us to be rich or poor as Christians? Okay, it, it kind of makes you a little uncomfortable, especially asking the question in, in the church. And the reason being is that it's the wrong question. And if we ask the wrong questions, we're going to go to the wrong places and we're going to end up with the wrong answers. See, oftentimes we think today in terms of rich or poor, poverty or wealth, but the Bible doesn't speak in terms like that. Here's what the Bible asks. Are you righteous or unrighteous? Now, that's a totally different question, isn't it? So what do you think? As Christians, should we be righteous or should we be unrighteous? Okay, we should be righteous that God desires for us as Christians to be righteous. And that includes all of our lives, especially our finances. The way we get it, the way we save it, the way we spend it, the way that we steward it, that all of our lives would be lived for the glory of God and for the good of others. Now, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of conversation, confusion, con conflict, uh, questions surrounding class warfare. And the question everyone's asking is, who gets more? Okay, do, do the rich get more? Or, or do the poor get more? Who, who gets more? Okay. But the Bible doesn't ask that question. The Bible doesn't think in terms of poverty and wealth. The Bible thinks in terms of righteous and unrighteous. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in the book of James, as James writes to us about the way in which God sees us. And he's going to introduce us into two different characters. And these characters are very important because they're going to show up repeatedly throughout our study in the book of James. And James is a pastor writing to the first century Christian church. And to be honest, it's a church with a lot of problems. And so James is writing to them and he is confronting their understanding, their idea about the nature and character of God. But he's also challenging them to live out their faith in daily, practical, applicable, authentic ways. These are lessons that James learned from his big brother, Jesus. And so as we get in today, looking at these two characters, I find it most beneficial that we take a step back for a moment and we give you an overview of the four different the four different ways in which the Bible speaks about our wealth. These are four categories that the Bible speaks about when it comes to rich and poor. And so the first category that we see, you know, I was going to teach this in our study through 2 Corinthians, but I decided to kind of scratch it for a bit, and, um, and, and I wanted to save it for a later date, and that day is today. And so I'm really excited to be able to share this with you because the first time that I heard this, it totally changed my understanding about money and materialism. And I find it very helpful to think in these terms. And so I want to share these with you today. So the first category that the Bible speaks about when it comes to rich poor is the righteous poor. Okay, so can you think about anyone in the Bible who was righteous and poor? Okay, yeah, the Bible talks a lot about righteous and poor. We already seen that Jesus' family, they, they were poor, okay, but they were very righteous. In addition, we have men like John the Baptist, who was very poor, ate locusts and honey, but he was a very righteous man. We also see um, Paul, okay, who wrote, you know, you probably heard of him. He wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. And the majority of those books he wrote from prison, right, beaten, shipwrecked homeless, bitten by snakes, left for dead. He was a very godly man, very righteous, but he was also very poor. And so we look at, in the Gospels, the, the, the widow who gave her last two pennies, she gave all that she had, and though she was very poor, Jesus commended her for her righteousness. And this is the reason that Jesus says, blessed are the poor. So yeah, there are righteous poor people all across the scriptures. And the, the second category is the righteous rich. Okay, can you think of anyone in the Bible who is righteous yet rich? Yeah, in the Old Testament, you have men like Job. Job was very wealthy, very rich, had lots of resources, but he was also a very righteous man. We have Nehemiah, who raised massive amounts of funds to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We have, uh, we have men in the New Testament 
who were rich and also righteous. So Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Jesus his tomb. You have the women in Herod's household who traveled around and funded Jesus's ministry. And then you have women like Lydia in the book of Acts and the church of Philippi, who was a wealthy merchant. And she got saved in one of Paul's church plants. And then she funded the whole thing. So that way the church can continue to grow. So there is a way that we can use our wealth as worship and to see that we can be rich and righteous. Now, the third category is going to be the unrighteous and the poor. Now, is there anybody in the Bible you can think about who is unrighteous and poor? The book of Proverbs is all about the unrighteous poor. It mentions a man named the sluggard. Okay, this is the guy who is devolving on the evolutionary scale. Like, like you, he sits on his couch so long, you can't tell where his butt ends and the couch begins. Like, that's the man. He refuses to get up. He refuses to go to work. He refuses to get a job. Any money that he does get, he spends it unwisely, going to the casinos, gambling it all away, getting involved in get-rich-quick schemes. He's unrighteous and he is poor. And then we move forward to the New Testament, and there's lots of other examples. So consider Judas Iscariot. You've probably heard about him. He was one of Jesus' disciples. So as a disciple, he'd have been poor, okay, but he held on to the money bags for Jesus' ministry. He got greedy, and then he traded Jesus out for 40 pieces of silver, which, to be honest, is not a whole lot. And so he was unrighteous, and he was poor. So when we think about terms like poverty and wealth, we don't need to think about them in terms that are political, but biblical. And just because somebody is poor, it doesn't automatically mean that they are considered as righteous. And then the fourth category is this. Okay, the unrighteous rich. Now, is there anybody that you can think of who is unrighteous and rich? Yes, lots of people. And we live in a day and age where we love to, to hate on the rich. We think, oh, you know, the rich, you know, they're greedy and crooked and corrupt and evil, and they only got their money by taking from, robbing from, stealing from other people. We know that there's bodies buried somewhere. We just haven't found them yet. We love to focus in on the unrighteous and the rich. We call them lobbyists and con artists and, and corporates. And we, we love the story of Robin Hood where, you know, the poor get poor, the rich get rich. They don't deserve it, so we need to take it from them and give it to the ones who don't have. That way there can be equality and fairness and that everybody can live a more pleasant and pleasing type of life. We love to focus in on the unrighteous and the rich. Okay, so is there anybody in the Bible you can think about who is unrighteous and rich? Lots of men. Lots of men. Consider Pharaoh in Egypt. Right? Owned slaves, very rich, but he was a very unrighteous man. Xerxes in the book of Esther, okay? very unrighteous. Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Okay? Yeah, kings of the Old Testament were wicked and very unrighteous. Now we can flash forward to the New Testament and we still see the same thing. Herod, Pilate, um, Caesar, unrighteous men. I mean, these are men who killed Jesus. And just, you know, just so you know that if you're on the team who killed Jesus, like, eh, not doing very good. Then in the book of Acts, you have, um, you have Ananias and Sapphira, right, in the church, lying about what they give. The Holy Spirit strikes them dead because they were unrighteous. And probably the most familiar case of the unrighteous rich is a man that Jesus talks to called the rich young ruler. I mean, rich is in his name. And so this man comes up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what can I do to be saved? How can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, you need to get rid of your stuff and then you can come follow me and then you'll have eternal life. And the Bible tells us that the rich man, he hung his head, literally turned his back to Jesus because he loved his stuff more than his savior. He loved his riches more than his righteousness. And so those are the four categories of poverty and wealth when it comes to the Bible. Now, now yes, why did you share that with me? Because I want you to consider which one best represents your life. Like, who are you in, in this category? And I don't want you to think in terms of, of rich and poor, but I want us to think in terms of righteous and unrighteous, because that's the way that God sees, sees you. So I got one more Bible trivia question for you. You guys thought we were finished. Okay, I got, I got one more for you. Um, Jesus Christ. Was Jesus rich or was he poor? What do you think? Was Jesus rich or was Jesus poor? Okay. Both. Jesus was both. I got a verse for you. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So Jesus Christ in eternity past and eternity future, okay, in heaven, very rich. If you read the book of Revelation, it gives us a glimpse into that eternal kingdom. We see that Jesus is seated on a throne and that he is the king and he is surrounded by angels who are worshiping him, singing, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. And all of the leaders, all of the kings and queens and presidents, they're taking off their crowns and they're laying them before the feet of Jesus. And every tribe, every tongue, every nation is gathered around him, worshiping and celebrating Jesus Christ as king. And in this kingdom, there are many mansions. And the streets, what are the streets made out of? Gold. Okay, so you, you know the economy is pretty good when we start paving streets out of gold. They're like, hey, Jesus, what do we do with all this gold? And he's like, I don't know, build a road with it. Okay, you know the economy is doing pretty good when you start building streets out of gold. Just imagine, like I-10 uh, has been under construction since I was a child. And you keep waiting for the road to be finished and waiting for the bridge to downtown to be complete. Now, what if the, what if the, the mayor got on television and said, okay, guys, we're almost finished with I-10. We're just waiting for the gold. Yeah, you're like, I'm not even mad about that. Like, that's, that's actually pretty awesome. Okay, so in heaven, Jesus rich? Yes, Jesus very rich. But then Jesus entered into human history, and Jesus traded glory for poverty. And so Jesus was born to an unwed single teenage girl, adopted by a blue-collar carpenter man named Joseph, spent his life swinging hammers, working hard out in the sun in the middle of a rural hick town out surrounded by no one in the middle of nowhere. And then about the age of 30, Jesus entered into his public life and ministry. And Jesus became a preacher, and preachers tend not to make more money than carpenters. And the Bible tells us that he was homeless. The foxes have their dens, the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. And so he traveled around with some friends, maybe crashed on a couple of couches, slept outside around a campfire. It tells us that he couldn't afford to pay his taxes. He couldn't afford to feed his friends and his family. And Jesus also, he couldn't even afford his own tomb after his crucifixion. And so Jesus exchanged glory for poverty. So here's the big idea. Okay. Jesus was rich. Jesus was poor. So here's what we want you to do. We want you, if you are rich, to be rich like Jesus. Okay. Use your wealth as a form of worship. And if you're poor, well, we want you to be poor like Jesus and to use your poverty as a means of worship. And you may ask, well, how do I use my poverty as a means of worship? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked. Luckily for us, uh, Jesus' little brother James, who grew up in poverty, he wrote us a book. And so he can tell us all about what it means to worship God in the midst of our poverty or our wealth. And here's what James says in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Okay, James starts off by saying, let the lowly brother Okay, that word lowly, it literally means the poor man or the one who is in humble circumstances. See, every other major world religion, it's all about your money. Okay, it's, it's what you can do, it's what you can give, it's what you can buy. That if you have enough money, then, then you can become righteous. If you're rich enough, then you can become righteous. That you can buy your ticket to heaven, you can pay for your seat in heaven, you can afford your salvation or your righteousness. And that if you just do good, work hard, pay it all off, then you're fine. Okay, it's all about your money. But Christianity is the exact opposite. Okay, Christianity, it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. And that you can't afford your salvation. You can't buy your seat in heaven. You can't pay for your own righteousness. Christianity is exactly the opposite of every other major world religion. And it teaches us that God gives it to us freely, not by anything that we have done, not by anything that we have earned, but all because of the grace that God gives to us through the person and work of Jesus. And so James says, let the lowly brother boast. Okay, so, so you're like, well, what does it mean to be lowly? What does that look like for me to be lowly? Okay, you say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, down, I'm not up here, but I'm, I'm rather down here. Okay, I'm not rich. I'm actually kind of poor. Okay, I'm not very special. I'm pretty average. I'm not smart. I'm pretty typical. 
He's like, I'm, I'm not an A student. I'm a C student. I'm not the boss. I'm an employee. I'm not very beautiful. In fact, I actually feel pretty normal. Right, I don't get a lot of attention. Okay, to be honest, like I kind of feel like I'm a little overlooked because I feel, I feel lowly. Okay. Now, here's what's happening at James Church. Some idiots came in and started teaching that the more money you make, the more God loves you. And that material wealth were signs of God's blessing and favor. And that God loves you more than everybody else because look at how much he has given you. And so the more money you make, the more you are loved by God. And so if you were rich, then you got to sit in the front. But if you're poor, well, then you have to sit in the back. And if you were smart or special, then everyone paid special attention to you. But if you were just a normal, everyday, common, average folk, well, then you need to sit in the back. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. This still happens in the church today. Like, let's not kid ourselves. Like, we have not evolved beyond this as a church. We still have this same line of thinking. We still have this line of teaching, even today within the church. Today, we just call it health and wealth theology or prosperity gospel. And just because you add gospel to something, it doesn't mean that it's true. But we still teach this. This is what leads to our racism and prejudice and classism and ageism and all of that. And what's the danger in James Church is also the danger in our church is that we begin to present ourselves with an identity and then we can feel very lowly. That our net worth is determining of our self-worth and we begin to identify with that and we become poor and we feel lowly. Now, might I submit to you this, that Jesus was poor but he was very important. And so some of you come here and you're, you're, you're watching this and, and you're thinking, yeah, I, I feel a little lowly. Right? I, I, feel, I feel down here. Okay, I, I feel poor. I'm not very smart. I'm not very successful. I'm not very powerful. I feel, I feel lowly. And here's what James says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He say, how, how do I do that? Like, what, is that, what does that look like? You're like, like I, I'm a D student, right? Ds get degrees. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. Um, I, I had a job last week. I was dating somebody, okay, but now they're dating somebody else. Okay, what does that look like? Lowly, right? How am I supposed to boast and to, and to celebrate, to get happy, to be glad? How am I supposed to look at my circumstance and feel anything worth boasting in? Like, how does this make any sense? It's a paradox. And that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a paradox. So James says, okay, some of you, you feel lowly. Okay, you, you feel down here. Okay, here's what you need to do. You need to boast in your exaltation. Okay, you say, I, 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 I feel down here. God's like, I don't see you down there. Okay, I see you up here. You say, I, I feel poor. God says, nope. When I see you, you are very rich. I feel unimportant. God says, nope. When I see you, you are very important. So important, in fact, that I sent my only son, Jesus, to raise you from death to life. And now I don't see you the way the world sees you. I see you for who I say that you are. I don't see you for what other people say that you are. I see you for the way that heaven sees you. And when I see you, you are exalted. And just as Jesus was exalted, so you too will be exalted. You'll be seated with him in the heavenly places, and God declares you as righteous. So we need to let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Okay, see, God sees us, and he sees us for who he says that we are, not for what other people say that we are. Okay, we can boast in this. And now this isn't boasting in our accomplishments. What James is saying is this. James is saying that is our identity is not achieved from the world, but rather received from the Father. And that God is a good Father and loves us as his children. And he's calling us. He's welcoming us. He's bringing us into the family of God. And when God sees us, he doesn't see us as poor. He sees us as rich. He doesn't see us as lowly. He sees us as exalted. And for that reason, no matter who you are, where you're at, or what you're going through, you can boast because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, you have been declared righteous. And now this isn't boasting in our accomplishments. Okay, this is boasting in what Christ has accomplished for us. This isn't boasting in what we do. This is, what, this is boasting what Christ has done in us, to us, and through us. Okay, and also, it's not lying. 
right? It's not lying to people. It's not trying to trick them or to tell them something about themselves that's not true just to make them feel better. That's not what God is doing. It's not like going and say, oh, Byron, you're so tall, right? No, I'm not tall, right? I'm 5'9 on a good day, okay? Oh, Byron, you can sing so well. Uh, no, like when I sing, it sounds like somebody stepped on a cat, okay? It's not lying or trying to make someone think something about themselves that's not true. Here's what it is. It's being honest, it's being humble, and it's about being hopeful. See, Redemption, I, I need you to understand this. I need you to see this, that when God sees you, he sees his son. That when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees his son. He doesn't see you for who you were, he sees you for who he says that you are. He doesn't see you for what you have done, but he sees you as the person in which through Christ you can become. And for that reason, for that reason, we can boast. So James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And I need to spend just a little bit more time just hammering this out because it's so important. And I really want you to grasp this. What James is talking about here is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It's a, it's a funny word. It's a big word. It's a theological word. But here's what it means. Okay, righteousness. It means right standing before God. Imputed means the trading of value or, or, or giving something that no one else deserves. So what we're saying is that it's a gift by God through grace, by faith, nothing that you could do, nothing that you can earn. And so here's, here's the question. Okay, how can I, as someone who is lowly, ever stand before a God who is holy? How can I, as someone who has sinned, will sin, stand before a God who has never sinned? How can I, as someone who is imperfect, stand before a God who is perfect? How can I, as someone who is separated from God, ever stand in the presence of God, unrighteous before the righteous? How is this ever even possible? How can I do this without experiencing judgment or condemnation upon my life? The answer is, you can't. You can't do it. So here's what God did instead. God sent his only son, Jesus, to become poor in your place. And that Jesus lived the sinless life that you never could in your place. Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could in our place. Jesus died the painful death that we deserved in our place. And Jesus was buried in the tomb that was waiting for us in our place. And through his resurrection, Jesus conquered Satan, sin, hell, death, the grave, and all of its effects, and everything that stood between us and God, and everything that separated us from God, and he gives us grace and hope and mercy, redemption and righteousness. So now you are declared righteous by God through the blood of Jesus, through the finished work of Christ on the cross. You have been declared righteous. And for that reason, God says, welcome into my family, welcome into my presence, and now that you're here, you can boast because what Christ has accomplished. And so James is, is writing and he's, he's telling us, he said, okay, let the rich, let the poor, that's not the question. The question is righteous or unrighteous. See, when we get to heaven, God's not going to divvy us up by rich or poor, but righteous or unrighteous. And so he says to the, to the poor man, he says, are you poor? Okay, boast because in Christ you're very rich. And now he's going to transition and he's going to begin to talk to the rich man. Okay? And the question still remains. Okay? Not rich, poor, but what? Righteous, unrighteous. Here's what James says to the rich man. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. See, we tend not to boast about our humiliation. We don't like to talk about, we don't like to brag about, we don't like to tell other people about our humiliation, about our faults or about our failures or about our, our sin. Anytime that we make a mistake, anytime that we fail, what do we do? Okay, we hide, we retreat, we isolate, we pull back, we build up walls, we push other people away because we don't want people to see us for who we truly are. And so on our Instagram and Snapchats, like we put filters on it just to cover up any type, any sort of imperfection that we may have. And when we feel humiliated, when we, when we make mistakes, when we sin, when we make failures, what do we do? Okay, we become self-righteous. 
We become conceited, puffed up, arrogant, proud. We begin to justify ourselves. And James says, if that's who you are, if that's what you do, you will be humiliated. See, God has two plans. Okay, humility or humiliation. See, you will either be humbled or you'll be humiliated. And, and, I, and I know this, okay? How do you say, Pastor Byron, how do you know that? Uh, from experience. Okay, I, I've both been humble and I've been humbled. I have been humiliated. I've learned, I've learned from my own experience what James is saying here. And here's what he says. He says, the rich will <clears throat> boast in their humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass, its flowers fail, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I believe that James here is talking about uh, the unrighteous rich. I think he's talking about a non-Christian. And here's the reason why I think that. Because when James was talking about the, um, the lowly brother, he, he calls him a brother. Okay, here there's no mention of this man being a brother. Right, just, because, just because you're here, it doesn't automatically mean that you're a part of the family. Not everyone is in the family of God. Not everyone is brothers and sisters. Some people are lost. And you can even be in the church and still not be a part of God's family. This man was, okay, this rich man, he sat in James' church every single week listening to the sermons. But he was still unrighteous. He refused to change. See, this is the man who is so caught up in the things of this world that they totally miss out on what God is saying and what God is leading them to do. One New Testament commentator, Douglas Moo, he writes that the actual translation of this is that the rich man will fade away while he is still working on his business. This means that just as you're going through your everyday, normal, common life, you're so wrapped up in the things that don't even matter. You're so consumed with your thoughts about this world that you think nothing of the world that is to come. Here's the big lie today, that you can buy your own righteousness. That if you're a good person and you do good deeds and you have a good job and you raise good moral kids, well then God's going to love you because everybody else pays so much attention to you and why wouldn't God love you when everybody else does? And so you look for your identity from your income, your worship through your wealth, and that you are looking for your riches through your righteousness. And you're so caught up, you're so consumed, not with what Christ has done, but what you can consume in your own life. Okay, listen, Redemption, this is exceedingly important. You need to know this, that one of the reasons that we love our money so much, it's not because of the things that it provides, but the identity that it can purchase. Okay, this is the reason that Jesus talks about money more than anyone else in the entire Bible. One out of seven verses in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is just talking to us about our money, how we get it, how we save it, how we spend it, how we steward it, and what we do with our money. Because Jesus knows that the way that we view money is the way that we view our lives. And that the way that we see our money is the way that we see ourselves and that it can consume who we are as a person. So you, you may come and you, may, you think, oh, I feel lowly. Okay, I feel pretty poor. I feel pretty average. Well, if I get enough money, all that can change. See, I, I don't feel very beautiful. I feel actually pretty normal, very typical. But if I make enough money, well, I can fix that. If you get enough money, you can pretty much do whatever it is that you want. Right? Fancy vacations, cosmetic surgery, lavish lifestyles. You can pay for sex. You can buy your friends. You can reposition yourself within society as a brand new identity, a new you, a new who you are. You say, oh, I'm not down there. I'm, I'm up here. Okay, I'm not average. I'm, I'm special. I'm somebody important. I'm not poor. No, I'm, I'm rich. Right? Look, look at me. Okay, see, for you, it's an issue of glory, that you want all of the glory in this life. You don't want God to be at the center. You want to be at the center. You don't want to give God fame. You, you want the fame. You don't want to live for God's name. You want to live for your own name. You're at the center. You want the center of attention. Everybody come look at me. Everybody come see me. Everybody come see how awesome, how special, how great, how wonderful, how blessed that I am. Everybody come look at me. So what you do is you spend money you don't have to buy things that you don't need to impress people that you don't even like. See, sociologists call this conspicuous consumption. Okay, what that means is that, that we, we buy things not because of the fun functionality of the product, but the identity that it produces. See, what, I, what I've discovered is that people tend to look for their identity in one of five places. Okay, and this is so common for all of us, myself included. 
that we tend to look for our identity in five different places. First, we look for our identity in other people. Hey, what people say, what people think, what people do, who people are hanging out with. And we look to other people to tell us who we are. And so if I could only hang out with these people, then, then everything's going to be fine. If I can only impress these people, then I'll, I'll finally be accepted. If I can only get 1,000, 2,000 Instagram followers, then, then my life will finally make sense and people will see how special I am. I mean, isn't that the reason that we check our phones every 30 seconds? Why? Because we want to see what people say. We want to see what people do. We want to see what they're thinking and who they're with. Okay, the people that we, we surround ourselves with, it really says a lot about the person that we're trying to become. Other people tell us who we are and then we get our identity from them. The second is we find our identity in other places. So we think, okay, well, these are my places. This is kind of what I look for. This is who I want to be. So, so here's where I, here's where I you know, go to restaurants. Here's where I go shopping at. Here's where I go on vacations. Right? Here's where I went camping. Here's the mountain that I climbed. Here's the beach that I went to. Here's the resort that I, I went to. Okay, see, we can find our identity in other places, places that we go or places that we live. And we think, oh, if I could only get this house, then, oh, I'll finally be satisfied. And then you, you get the house that you always wanted, and then it's empty. And so you got to buy a whole bunch of stuff to fill that house up. And so you're buying couches and rearranging your living room. You're thinking, if I could just get the right feng shui, then, then finally, then I, everything will be happy. Or, or maybe you're like, I hate living in Beaumont. So I want to move to Austin. Why? Because that's where all the cool people live. And so you want to move to Austin or you want to move to another city or another location because where you live or where you go says a lot about the person that you are. And, and so you're like, these are, these are my people, these are my places. And that's where we receive our identity. And the third is from our possessions. Okay? The possessions say a lot about who we want to be as a person. Okay, okay think about it. Okay, do you drive a truck? You're like, mmm, big truck, yes, I can fit a deer in here, right? Good. Okay, drive a truck. Where do you drive a minivan? You're like, I can fit my kids in here and take them home very ashamedly, right? Okay, right, doesn't our possessions say a lot about who we are? Okay, well, say you're in the middle of a crowd, okay? Big crowd, lots of people around, all of a sudden the phone rings, pull out, oh, what is that? It's an iPhone 7 Plus, okay? Oh, you're so important, your phone's as big as your ego, like put it up next to your head, everybody look at you. Okay, say you're still in the same crowd, phone rings, pull it out, it's a flip phone. You're like, oh God, I'm so embarrassed. Please don't call me. Right? You, you don't have a smartphone. You have a, you have a dumb phone. Yeah, see, our, our possessions really say a lot about who we are as a person. You're like, I'm totally broke, but check out this huge flat screen TV. I mean, it's, it's curved. It's got 4K. Right? I don't even know what a K is, but I have four of them. Right, check out my Xbox. You're like, I, I can't afford to put gas in my car, but check out this massive sound system I have in the back. Right? It rumbles your insides. It's so cool. We're not going anywhere, yeah, but, but I mean, isn't it great? You're like, I'm, I can't pay my bills, but check out my new watch. It's very shiny. See, our possessions really say a lot about the person that we want to be. And then the fourth place in which people find their identity, it's in their power. So you're saying, I'm lowly, I'm average, I don't have a lot of authority, I don't have a lot of credibility, but if I get enough power, oh, then all of that can change. And that money, money can present yourself to where people think that you're very powerful and you're very important. So they think, oh, hey, you know, check out that guy, look at that guy, I want to be like that guy, right? That guy must be very important. And the more money you make, the more you can get away with pretty much anything it is that you want. See, in this life, there's lots of reasons for us to feel lowly, to feel poor, for us to feel unimportant. I mean, everything from movies to magazines to social media, marketing, advertisings, like everyone's just trying to get us to buy stuff. Like buy this and you'll be happy, do this and you'll be satisfied, then you'll finally be who you wanna be. Wear these clothes, go to these places, go to these destinations, go to these schools, hang out with these people, and then you'll finally be the person that you always wanted to be if you would just buy this. See, there's lots of reasons for us to feel lowly and for us to feel poor. Looking for our identity from our income, looking for worship through our wealth. But there is a fifth place in which people can find their identity, and that's within God's promises. That God says, okay, are you lowly? Come here. Okay, I will exalt you. That's a promise. 
If you, if you are poor, okay, come to me, rejoice, because in me you are very rich. And that is a promise. God's saying, don't look to the treasure, look to me. Don't look to the world, look to me. I'm the only one who can give you glory. I'm the only one who can give you grace. I'm the one who created you, and so I'm the only one who can tell you who you are. And I'm the only one who can give you righteousness. If you come to me, I will make you righteous. And God gives us that promise. So the promises of God, that's where we find our identity. Okay, James is, James is saying, okay, are you, are you lowly? Well, boast, because your identity is found in Christ. Are, are, are you poor? Boast, because your identity is found in Christ. It's about righteous and unrighteous. And James says, if you're rich and unrighteous, then you too, you too need to boast. You need to boast not in Christ, but boast in this life. Because this life is all you get. That this life, everything you see, everything you have, enjoy it. Laugh it up. Live it up. Because one day will be gone, and it's all you got. See, he gives us the illustration that our identity is like that of a flower. Have you ever seen a nice flower on a beautiful spring day? Like you're, you're going for a walk, maybe out in the park or in a garden, and then you see a beautiful flower. And, and you stop, and you admire it, and you look at it, and you touch it, you smell it, but you don't want to pick it. Right? Because it's so beautiful, you're afraid that you're going to mess it up. And so, so, so you, you, you notice it, and then you keep walking. Okay, and then what happens? The Texas sun comes up, and scorches it out, a hurricane comes through, washes it away, the landscaper comes by and chops it down. That is your life. James says that's who you are. You're like a flower of the field. And one day it will be burned, one day it will be devastated, one day it will be destroyed. James says that our identity is like that of a flower. Okay, now we can look for our identity in lots of different places. People to speak to us, people to, to love us, but the people that we look to, they will disappoint us. They will fail us. They will deceive us. They will even let us down. And when they do, our identity is gone. For all the places that we want to go, like we're going to run out of money, we're going to run out of destinations, and when you do, you're going to be empty inside because your identity was out there and you never could achieve it. And all the possessions that you longed for, they will own you, and one day, enough will never be enough. And all the power you sought to accumulate, it will crush you, it will devastate you, it will destroy you. Okay, everything will fail, everything will fade, but the promises of God, now those are forever. Here's the big idea. James wants us to live with the end in mind. That one day you will stand before God and you will give an account for all of your accounts. And one day Jesus will return and he's going to bring along with him the kingdom of God and everything that you thought, everything that you wanted, everything that you invested in. So long at the renewal of all things, it will be devastated, it will be destroyed, and you will be humiliated. James wants us to live with the end in mind. See, I get so worried for some of you, okay, because this life is as close to heaven as you will ever be. And so you, you, you love your stuff, you're consumed with this world, you're, all you're thinking about is this life, and you're investing in things that in the end, they don't even matter. I get so worried for some of you, because life is short, hell is hot, and forever is a long time. And whatever you're seeking for, it will burn, and you will burn along with it. See, guys, I hate to try to make you fearful or to, to scare you. That's not my intention. But James here, he is talking about eternal torment. He is talking about hell and judgment. And some of you, you are wasting your lives on things that don't even matter. And this is closest to heaven as you will ever get. But for others of you, okay, this is as close to hell as you'll ever be. Okay, and, and so you can rejoice that though you may be lowly, that's not the way it's always going to be. That though you may be poor, that's not the way that it's always going to be. Because your identity is in Christ, and just like Jesus was exalted, so you too one day will be exalted. Where are we receiving our identity? What are we looking for to tell us who we are? See, James is going to give us three promises in which we are to live by. He wants us to live with the end in mind. But these promises, these aren't promises that are awaiting for us in heaven. These are promises that are available for us today, for us to get heaven to earth, for us to live our everyday life in practical, authentic, and applicable ways. These are promises that God gives for us today. 
So here's what James says, is he gives us three promises to live by. We're going to skip over to verse 16. We'll cover the middle part next week. Here's what he says. Do not be deceived. He is reminding you, don't be deceived. Don't get caught up in the day-to-day things, the everyday stuff that catches your attention, that will lead you astray. Don't get caught up in what people say or what people think. Stay, Stay focused on the Lord. Keep on to these promises. Then he says, my beloved brothers. There's your identity. He calls you beloved, okay, that you are the beloved of God, that God adopts us into his family and he loves us like a father. And then he says, brothers, sisters. So as a part of God's family, we become brothers and sisters as he welcomes us into his kingdom. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So God is a father, we are his family, and God gives good gifts to his children. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. And so James starts off by saying, do not be deceived. And you think, well, I'm not deceived. Okay, that's the nature of deception. Okay, you don't realize that you're deceived. That's, that's just kind of how it works. So you can be a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, God-honoring, spirit-filled, church-going Christian, and you can still be deceived. You can still believe things about God that simply are not true. You can still believe things about yourself and your identity that simply are not true. See, the the number one case for um, counseling here for me at the church is when people come to me and they say, Byron, you know, hey, I really need to talk. I'm going through a hard time. The number one cause, it's not family, it's not finances. You know what it is? It's people's feelings. They they come and say, Pastor, I I feel lowly. I feel unloved. I feel unworthy. I feel like all my life is is the worst day. I feel like I've lost my salvation. I don't know how God could love me. I don't know how anybody else can love me. I feel pathetic. I feel hopeless. And in that moment, I say, okay, stop. Just take a deep breath. That may be how you feel, but what's the truth? See, our feelings are very real, but our feelings need not be fed. So we ask, okay, that's how you feel, but what is the truth? What does God say about you? Who does God say that you are? What does the Bible teach you? What does the Bible say that you are? See, this word... This word is the truth. This this word tells us who we are, who God is, how God wants for us to live, and it tells us what God has done for us. And this is why we need to keep coming back, because this word is the truth, that we don't walk by our feelings, we walk by our faith. And we need to keep coming back to the word of God that builds up our faith. This is why I tell you all the time, you need to read your Bible, love your Bible, study your Bible, memorize your Bible, pray over your Bible, get into community group, discuss the Bible with one another, because the more you get this word into your heart, the more you'll understand who you are. And so when those moments of deception and of feelings and of doubt come into your life, you'll see them for what they truly are, and you'll know what to do when they come. We need to be focused on the word of God so we're not deceived by the ways of this world. And then James is going to give us our three promises that we are to live by. The first thing he says is this, is that God's love for us never changes. That God's love for us, it it, it never ceases. It never changes. It's like the sun. He's the father of lights. When you walk outside today, you're not going to be worried if the sun is still going to be there. You know that it's still going to be there. And that's the same way God's love for you is, that when God chooses to love you, he never stops loving you. When God chooses to save you, he will continue to save you. When God fills you with the Spirit, he will continue to fill you with the Spirit. When God calls you his children, God never walks out on his kids. And this is good news for us because in a world that is ever-evolving and constantly changing, there is only one constant in a world filled with change, and that is that God's love never changes. And that's good news. The second thing is that God gives good gifts. That God is a father and he loves to give good gifts to his children. And so as a father, he's adopted us in his family and he loves to lavish good gifts upon us as his children. And so everything we have, ultimately, it comes from God. Okay, the big lie is that what I have is what I've earned. No, what you have is what God has allowed. As Christians, Everything that we own belongs to and comes from God. He entrusts it to us to steward and to share with ourselves, with our family, and with the world around us. 
Okay, God is the most generous person. Jesus is the greatest gift giver. So we want to be like Jesus, which means we are to receive and to be generous just as Jesus was generous to us. I mean, let's just think about all the ways and all the good gifts that God has given us. I mean, God gave us Jesus, which gives us new life. God gives us the Holy Spirit, which gives us new power. God gives us the Bible, which gives us new direction. God gives us the church, which gives us new purpose. God has given us everything and anything else in this life, that's just an added bonus. And so when we take this understanding of the character of God, that he gives good gifts, it allows us to have an attitude of gratitude, to recognize that everything we have comes from him. And then we get to share it to the world around us. God gives good gifts. And then number three is that God calls us his children. So maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I'm, I'm lowly. God says, give me you. I don't have anything to bring. God says, give me you. I'm, I'm poor. God says, give me you. I'm not anybody who's special. God says, give me you. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. God says, that doesn't matter. If you give me you, I will give you myself. I will give you my last name and you can become one of my children. The adoption papers are already signed. You can walk into my family. You can receive your identity and you can be the person that I always created you to be. I love to take kids just like you. Kids that are broken and heal them and make them whole. Kids who are poor, I love to make them rich. Those who are lowly, I love to make them exalted. Those who are worthless, I love to give them worth. Those with no identity, I love to give them with new identity. And right now, today, I would really like to make you my child. I would really love to bring you into my home, into my family, and give you a church and give you a people so that you can call them brothers and sisters. If you will just give me you, I will give you everything. That's the promise that God has for us. See, redemption, I need you to see yourself this way. Not the way the world says you are, but the way that God says you are. I need you to see yourself through heaven's eyes. That when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. When God sees you, he doesn't see you for who you were, but for who through Christ you become. That God has made you righteous. And he gives you three promises. And those three promises are for us to live by today in hopes for our future tomorrow. And that is that God's love never changes, that God gives good gifts to his children, and that God calls us his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus, who did all of this for us, who made us righteous, who gives us new identity, gives us new life, Father, we pray that we would be exalted in you, that we will boast in our lowliness because we have an identity that is in heaven, seated with you in your righteousness. Father, for those of you who feel far away and trusting in things that are not of you, Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit will remove those idols of the heart, that you, you would give them a new heart so they'll be tender and soft to the ways of the Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Thank you guys for watching today. Um, if you could do me a favor, please share this if you made it and uh, so we can get the word out. We love you. Grace, peace out. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.